Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Last Sunday, we celebrated the mothers in our lives. But for many Black women, becoming a mother poses real medical and emotional challenges. Black mothers in Connecticut face substantial barriers to the joy of a safe, happy birthing experience because of racism in the healthcare system. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, we'll hear from a doula who's creating better birthing outcomes. But first, I'm joined by advocates for Black maternal wellness here in the state. Dr. Lucinda Canty is a certified nurse midwife and assistant professor of nursing at the University of St. Joseph. Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett is executive director of Health Equity Solutions. It's a nonprofit promoting equitable healthcare access for Connecticut residents. And Zaria Smith is health policy fellow at the Connecticut Commission for Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity. The statistics are jarring. In Connecticut, Babies born to Black mothers are more than four times as likely to die before their first birthday compared to babies born to white mothers. That's according to a 2018 study from the Connecticut Health Foundation. And Black women across the country are three times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes compared to white women. That's according to the CDC. Ask Lucinda Canty to talk about her birthing experience and how it shapes her work as a midwife and professor. So uh, my son is 11 now. And as a nurse midwife, it was very overwhelming because you always like, you know, the possible complications, but you also feel like, especially your first time, am I doing the right thing? Am I eating the right things? If I turn this way, am I going to do something to the baby? So it was very overwhelming that even once I had an ultrasound and they couldn't see his heartbeat well. So I was like um, nervous and I went to my friend who was an OB and I said, they don't see the baby's heart. They don't, my baby doesn't have a heart. And she's like, cut it out, just sit down, write a journal. You're just thinking too much into it. And, but it just showed me the power of that support because it helped it ease my anxiety. And then, you know, I had a long labor. I had to be induced because the baby had low fluid. And I, but I always had this dream of having a vaginal birth but I ended up with a cesarean because I wouldn't dilate and then there was fetal distress. And it was so overwhelming. And then to have a new baby. And again, those things, questions come start all over again. You know, am I doing the right thing? And as a midwife, it was like, I deliver the baby, then I give it back to the mom. You know, if the baby starts crying, give it back to the mom. So this time it was like, I had to go home. So when I was discharged, I was like, I have to bring him home with me all by myself. (laughs) And his father was involved, but it's still so overwhelming. And then what a part of my experience was feeling, you know, my moods changing, you know, wondering what if this was depression, but then also feeling like I'm a new mom, I shouldn't be depressed and not knowing where to go or who to talk to. And I always wondered what would happen if I had someone to talk to and they say, you know what, this is normal. You're going to be okay. Or, you know, these are normal emotions. We can get you help if you need help. But just having someone to talk it through, because sometimes you feel like family doesn't really understand. You know, everyone's like, oh, don't worry, you're fine. Even the doctor, you know, I even checked off on the form that I had some moods changes and they were like, they didn't even look at it. 
And I, I was too embarrassed to bring it up. So anyways, I just wish I had someone to help me navigate my way through. Zaria, I'm listening to Lucinda talk about her experience. And so much of that resonates with me and feeling like this is this beautiful time in your life. You're supposed to only be happy and excited. And if you're not, that means that maybe you failed at that. And being able to communicate that and have that taken seriously is a part of this broader issue when we talk about that. Talk to us about what's behind those numbers and why giving birth is such a dangerous experience and often a challenging experience, not just for mothers in general, but for Black mothers in particular. Black infants now are more than twice as likely to die um, as their white counterparts. So the maternal mortality rate, or excuse me, infant mortality rate um, for Black infants is about 11.3 per 1,000 live births compared to 4.9 for white children. Um, and Black women are about three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes um, compared to their white counterparts, unfortunately. And so this is similar for Connecticut, um, where, about, where Black babies are about three times more likely to die um, in the first year compared to white babies. Um, and this statistic is actually two times um, for Latinx babies compared to white babies. Um, and so again, the statistic in Connecticut is a, there's a black infant mortality rate of about 48 um, infants per 1,000 live births for black children uh, and 14.8 for white children. I want to follow up on that and ask you about this concept of weathering that has become so important to understanding not just the numbers, but also addressing the why and the how behind those statistics. I find it really interesting. Um, so I was able to testify in support of uh, dual certification a few weeks ago for the Connecticut legislator. Um, and I'm a public health student, um, also been graduating, but one of the first things that I learned coming into the program um, was this concept of weathering, the weathering hypothesis and its relation to um, you know, black and uh, maternal health and infant health. Um, and so what this idea is essentially is that um, black people, right, are sort of constantly subjected to this racism, be interpersonal, structural, what have you. Um, and so this constant exposure to racism, especially early on in life and continued throughout, you know, adolescence and adulthood, puts stress on the body, right? So that it causes increased cortisol levels. So cortisol is that stress hormone. Um, and so when you're thinking of fight or flight response, right, you're thinking of rapid heart rate, shortness of breath, um, you know, even a lot of people when they go to the doctor, um, you know, and they say I have chronic headaches and they say it's because you're stressed, right? So we see a lot of the stress manifesting itself, um, you know, physically a lot. And so the chronic stress that especially black people are, are subjected to as a result of prolonged exposure to racism um, results in the early onset of disease, right? And this results in this sort of wearing away of the body, um, just, you know, increased wear and tear over time, which eventually makes, especially within Black mothers, right, makes it so much more dangerous um, for us to give birth um, because our bodies are already sort of worn away and, and, and our immune defenses are worn down, um, which makes it us more susceptible to complications, um, you know, and our, our puts our children at risk, essentially. Takesha, we're finally getting to a point as a country where we understand post-traumatic stress disorder, where people have some experience or collection of experiences and it manifests in this trauma. But really what Zaria is talking about is a perpetual traumatic stress that as you are constantly navigating issues of race and racism, it has this impact on your body. And I'm thinking here about 
the conversations around COVID-19 in the beginning, when we saw these disparate outcomes and people suggested it was about individual level choices that lead to these comorbidities without addressing the structural repeated harms that make people, and in particular Black women, more likely to have these negative experiences. What are we seeing here in Connecticut related to health disparities and inequities that create the conditions that Lucinda and Zaria have talked about? Yeah, well, you know, I I always think it's interesting that we live in the tale of two Connecticut's, at minimum two Connecticut's. You can look at any sort of statistical report that comes out and on any given day, we are somewhere fluctuating between number three and five in the nation as one of the healthiest states in the nation. We fluctuate somewhere between three and five of one of the top wealthiest states in the nation. But in that same vein, you can flip that. Um, While we're number three or five healthiest state in the nation, we always rank at the bottom between 42 and 43 um, when it comes to health disparities. And when we look at being the top wealthiest, one of the wealthiest states in the nation, we also have one of the largest gaps between those who have wealth and those who do not. And we're the fifth most segregated state in the nation. These are things that people don't necessarily start to think about when they think about Connecticut. But when you unpack all of that, what it really means is that on a day-to-day level, there are people of color and particularly women of color who are not getting the healthcare access, the healthcare delivery and service, and the results that they so well deserve as being a resident in a, in a state that has all of this great wealth, access to doctors, and apparently access to health. So when we look at this, it's important that we connect the things that both Lucinda and Zaria have said before me to this very particular notion that you could live in a space that has all of this access and all of these great things. And yet, because of the color of your skin and the structural inequities that come with race, come with that from because of racism and still suffer and great access is right around the corner, but you are suffering daily and consistently and constantly. And I think that's the piece about structural racism that people tend to miss. When we talk about racism, people try to go straight to the, well, I'm not a racist. And I think in 2021, probably in 2020, and I would dare say 2000, it's it's time for us to get beyond that conversation about whether someone is individually racist or not and start really understanding the system that races the system of racism that is at play and how every day people who look like me and the other women who are joining us today are constantly living in a space of navigating our existence and justifying our existence and not knowing when we walk in the door um I'm recalling the story from Oprah when we walk in the door and we're Oprah Winfrey to buy a Hermes bag, whether we're going to be treated as less than and demeaned and discriminated against because of our skin color, our hair, and the perceived notions that come with that. This is something that people need to start thinking about daily because that system is at play in the background, whether we are interacting with somebody who is or is not interpersonally racist. We don't, it doesn't matter to us. But someone like me who has multiple degrees can never, ever walk freely into a space thinking, I'm just going to be honored for who I am, what I know, and the work that I did here. I always have to question who is the person because they're there. 
who is the person who's going to question my existence, my relevance, and whether I should be here? And when you pair that with mothering and birthing, I just listen to listen to story. And I really hope we hear what she said. She had all the knowledge and skills that anyone needs to help any other mother do this. And yet still questioned in the whole process herself. And that's not because of her. It's because of a system that calls us to do that constantly over and over again. And yes, I mean, I've never given birth, but let's just talk about it. We don't get classes. No one teaches us. And we could talk about that another time, but no one teaches us. So there's always a part of self-joy and self-doubt that comes back and forth because we are so conscious about doing the best that we can for our children. But there's a historical trauma that is linked to all to to the process of black mothering and to the process of black birthing. And if we don't tap into that, we're really missing the point. So I want to talk about that historical trauma. But as you were talking to Keisha, I was remembering hearing Serena Williams talk about her experience. Here's this woman who has access to the best medical care that money could buy, who has done all of the things to create this perfect birthing experience and has the kind of cachet that we think would ensure a positive outcome. And she talks about what it meant for her as a professional athlete to be very attuned to what her body was saying, to still not have her medical care providers listen to her say something is not wrong and that something being wrong literally could have resulted in her death. And so what it means to have to fight to affirm that existence, to have to fight the self-doubt that you face and also the doubt of those who are there to provide care to you. But then what do you do with that so that no one else has to experience that or navigate it? Before I bring Cynthia in to talk about the amazing work that you're doing, right? We know what the problems are. We know what the challenges are. What do we do with that? I want to take a step back to Lucinda and ask, Talk to us about this historical context of how Black women have helped take care of each other historically, even when they could not access those more traditional forms of medical care. Yes, and that's that, and that's the piece that people often miss, is that even from you know being enslaved and coming here through the Middle Passage, Black women have been providing nursing care, midwifery care, just taking care of everyone. And then when, you know, programs were being organized to provide nursing care or midwifery, we were told we couldn't be smart enough to be educated. But these women were providing care in the communities with limited resources and have better health outcomes than we do right now. I'm talking about midwives that will go into the home and deliver a baby where there's no hot water, no electricity. There definitely wasn't any fetal monitoring. And these babies came out well, they were healthy. And, but it was also that sense of community It was like people in the community knew that somebody was given birth and they were there to give that support. And, you know, again, those limited resources when there was segregation, there were laws to support that. And then now it's like when there was that shift, even like in the 50s, that shift to the hospital, we lost that community support because the midwives weren't allowed to go in. And it was it was organized to eliminate them by saying that they were harming women. When if you look at the statistics during that time, women were doing better in the home with nothing than in the hospital. And we know about the experimentation. 
But the common theme that keeps going throughout history is that black women can't be trusted to know what's going on with their body. Look at pain. Go way back when we didn't, we, we couldn't, we weren't smart enough to know that we have pain. And somehow it still keeps coming through our society and the care that's provided. The scary thing is there's systems in place that help support that. So the provider says, oh, I didn't give her any pain medication because you know, you know, we got addiction out there. Or we know on the based on the pain scale, one to 10, she didn't qualify for it. So they have things that keep supporting it, but it's causing harm to the women. And we just have to start again, looking at women, particularly all women of color, but particularly black women that we're human. And we need that support and guidance. It, we, and we have to make sure that those barriers that prevent that are eliminated and holding people accountable who cause harm to women because there's no accountability. So that's why these same things from slavery continue to keep on being a part of our, a main part of the care we receive. Lucinda Canty is assistant professor of nursing at the University of St. Joseph and a certified nurse midwife. After the break, we'll be back with our panel, Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett from Health Equity Solutions and Zaria Smith from the Connecticut Commission for Women, Children, Seniors, Equity and Opportunity. And we'll also meet a doula who's working to get more support for Black women across the state. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking with a panel of women who advocate for health equity for Black mothers and babies in Connecticut. Lucinda Canty is a certified nurse midwife and assistant professor of nursing at the University of St. Joseph. Takesha Dwan Everett is executive director of Health Equity Solutions, and Zaria Smith is health policy fellow for the Connecticut Commission for Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity. Earlier, we mentioned the CDC study that Black women across the country are three times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes compared to white women. Support during birth by midwives and doulas has been shown to significantly change those outcomes, and it can also decrease rates of premature birth and maternal complications. Joining our panel is Cynthia Hayes, a doula with Earth's Natural Touch. It's a Black-owned doula collective based in Bridgeport. I asked Cynthia to describe what a doula is and how she got into the work. A doula is usually a woman who has given birth, who provides support physically, um, sometimes spiritually and definitely emotionally throughout a birthing person's uh, pregnancy experience. So it's prenatal, it's during birth and postpartum, which we're realizing is is very, very important. Uh, We are non-medical. And there have been very early studies, maybe back, uh, goes back as far as like the 90s, to talk about who are doulas and why are they making a difference. So by having a doula just present in your birth, right, maybe you didn't even um, spend a significant amount of time with them prior to labor, but just being there during labor and providing information that they may need um, will greatly reduce the risk of C-section and other medical interventions, right? The use of Pitocin, um, it gives the 
birthing person a more satisfying birth experience. They're more likely to breastfeed. I started my journey quite innocently enough um, when I was pregnant with my first child. Of course, I'm reading up on all of the different, and uh, this is back in the very early 90s. Um, and so I wanted to be prepared. And I had a Black doctor, didn't realize the significance of having a Black doctor. And I did have complications that came up during my pregnancy, but I didn't opt for a doula at that time, which really isn't, uh, wasn't and isn't uh, still very a very popular choice for Black women. I had my mother and I had my sisters. And um, then later on, um, I wanted to have another source of income because, you know, that's what Black women do. And so I had decided that I was going to be a doula. I was primarily working with, if you can imagine, because they were paying exorbitant prices um, to have us present. And I was uh, primarily a uh, postpartum doula. And um, I enjoyed it. I love children. But I started noticing that although these some of these women living in these very lavish homes that come from backgrounds where they were very wealthy, they had a lot of family issues, so they didn't have a lot of support. Not only that, but they were having these horrible birth outcomes. And I was like, what? It just was a, it just blew my mind. Now, long story short, it just blew my mind. And then I started to wonder, well, wait a minute, if these women are having these type of experiences, what is happening to our community? I decided to go through um, a more rigorous training, a more culturally competent training um, that would help me, even as a Black woman, be able to um, properly prepare and provide the support and and provide anything that um, women in my community needed, um, not just to survive the pregnancy, but to give them the pregnancy and the birth that they desired and let them know that they were worthy to have those types of experiences that seemed to elude us. And, you know, I had to make myself familiar with what that looked like and see how uh, I could really get in there and support them in the way that they deserved. Lucinda, talk to us, what is the difference between a midwife and a doula in terms of those kinds of roles and functions? So midwives provide care and midwives are healthcare professionals. There's a training that they go through. They provide care during pregnancy, childbirth and postpartum and provide women's health care. That's my area right now. And a doula also has training in pregnancy, childbirth, in taking care postpartum. There's a lot of different areas. Even there's bereavement doulas. Doulas are not healthcare professionals, but they still go through a, a rigorous training and have to you know, get, become certified. So they still go through a training. Um, the difference also, I, just, I wanna say, I wanna make sure I say this, they both midwives and doulas improve health outcomes. So even though they don't have the medical training, they still know how to work with women to provide the support and care that they need so that they can have better health outcomes. And we're talking about lower cesarean rates. We're talking about initiation of breastfeeding more frequently and um, even just a lower risk of even postpartum complications, especially like postpartum depression. So we both do similar things. It's just our trainings are different and midwives can also have a nursing background. Like I have a nursing background, some midwives don't. 
So we still have the same common goal as focusing our care on the woman, but it's just our training is different. Thank you. Thank That was for me, but I also think for our listeners who may be thinking, how many people do we need to provide this? And I remember again, in my own experience, my OBGYN never really asked how I was doing. It was the pediatrician who said, how are you doing? And I said, oh, the baby's fine. And he said, no, how are you doing? And it seemed so basic, but transformative to think about outcomes across the spectrum and how promoting that health can do that. Zaria, pick up on that point about those more positive outcomes for the mother who has access to a doula and also what you're seeing in terms of an increased awareness and uh, access to doulas for black mothers in particular. Um, so I think it's already sort of been said here, um, but of course doulas have significant um, health outcomes, especially among black women. Um, of course there's fewer cesareans, um, they're associated with um, shorter labor lengths. Um, actually in one study, um, they compared birthing people who use a doula versus who didn't use a doula. Um, and they found that those with doulas were more likely to rate their birth experiences as good. Um, and they were less likely to use an epidural. Um, so we see these and they've also proven cost effective as well. Um, and they've been shown to sort of reduce Medicaid out-of-pocket expenditures. But I think what we've seen, especially at the Connecticut legislator, um, so there's been Senate Bill 1 that's been introduced, which first defines uh, what a doula is. Um, which is important since we don't want any there to be any ambiguity um, in terms of figuring out, okay, does the doula do this? Are they a medical professional? Are they a non-medical professional? Which of course they're a non-medical professional. Um, but it's also going to help with you know further professionalizing um, you know, the, the profession. One thing that the bill also does um, is require the commissioner of public health to establish a study to look into a state certification process for becoming a doula, um, which is an important first step for doula reimbursement. Um, so when we think about dual services, of course, these services aren't for free um, and sometimes they can be a bit expensive. Um, and when you're thinking about, you know, black women and the intersection of, of, of race and you know, poverty, right, these women are more likely to have significant health issues or to face these complications during birth, but may have less, less access, um, you know, to these improved health outcomes that are brought about because of a doula. So what we want to do is we want to, again, have Medicaid reimburse for doula services to ensure that these individuals do have access um, to, you know, postpartum care and labor and delivery care. Um, but I think one thing that's been mentioned here, right, is the 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 lack of sort of I, I suppose you could say cultural competence. So of course, if natural touch, right, um, you know, they really focus on Black women, but a lot of doula uh, training programs don't necessarily do that, or they don't touch on perhaps issues of intimate partner violence or the LGBTQ plus community. So definitely making sure that. Um, the state certification process that would come about as a result of this bill is considering right these marginalized groups is going to be really critical. Um, and then I think one of the last things that we can do to sort of you know ensure again that we as Black women have the necessary access to doula services is the consideration of training and the cost of training associated with becoming a doula. So actually, a lot of doula programs have a tiered uh, pricing scheme. So basically, they'll say. Um, if you are not able to uh, afford your rent or afford food, or if you don't feel your, your food secure, this is what your price would be. And that would be the lowest price versus, um, you know, if you are, are food secure, if you are comfortable paying your rent every month, if you're, you know, just overall um, financially stable, then you would pay a higher price. Um, so making sure that uh, 
the cost of, of this certification would not be one that would prove to be a barrier, especially in black and brown communities where, you know, that that may be a barrier. Um, but I think when I, I was recently in uh, another discussion about doulas um, and one of the things that someone had suggested, right, in terms of just increasing awareness by word of mouth um, was, you know, if you're at a baby shower and one gift that you could get um, the, the whoever is being celebrated at the baby shower, one gift that you could get that person um, would be like doula services. So I, and I think that was a really great way to sort of um, spread knowledge and awareness of the dual profession by word of mouth. But of course, there's 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 still a lot of significant work that needs to be done in this area in terms of educating um, and making the, the profession accessible to to us as well as other marginalized groups. I appreciate that idea. That's one less onesie for me to buy and instead something that could actually benefit the mother. Takesha, you are leading one of the most substantive and comprehensive health equity organizations in the state of Connecticut. But you've been advocating for doula care and supporting doulas for quite some time across the state. Why is this issue so personal and and important to you? And also, are you optimistic that we may finally see progress at the state legislative level addressing the sorts of challenges that Zaria just mentioned? I'll start off by saying the funny thing, I want to do it for my life. Um, I think it's just, there's nothing better than um, a a woman who has gone through what you're going through, who understands the challenges, the opportunities, the beauty of it all, and stands in the gap for you when you can't see anything else, right? Like, it's so much that's happening at that point. And for me, from a personal perspective, I just think back to my mother. Um, So much of my work is driven by my family and the experiences that we have had uh, collectively or individually. And it is well known and well said in my family that I am pretty much my mother's miracle baby. I am sandwiched between uh, two miscarriages before me and every other birth after me miscarrying. And um, I just think back to what I can say now, my mother didn't know and didn't have and um, the resources and the accesses to have other successful births. And the, the the funny part of the story is like, she didn't even know she was pregnant with me until she was five months. So we don't know if that was a part of the success or not, but we also don't know all of the things that did go wrong in those five months that probably shouldn't have happened. And I know generally speaking, there were a lot of difficulties um, from health difficulties that my mother experienced and had there been people who were paying attention and understanding her desire to successfully give birth and the environment necessary and needed for her structurally to do that, her outcomes could have been vastly different. And rather than being an only child, I could be one of many. Now, let's be clear, I'm very happy being an only child, but the outcomes could have been very different. And so this is deeply personal to me, but also I think deeply personal and profound to any Black woman who has seen or heard any of these stories that are just unnecessary. In the United States, one of the most developed countries in the world, we are experiencing for Black maternal mortality far worse outcomes than some undeveloped countries who are, or underdeveloped countries, I should say. It's not fair to call a country undeveloped, but um, underdeveloped country who doesn't have the resources that we do. And so for me, this is something that just has to happen. And I I am excited and I think we're going to get progress in Connecticut. And let me tell you why. 
Um, it's because the doulas are leading the way. And I think that's important to understand our role at Health Equity Solutions is to provide capacity support to the doulas to get what they need um, and to really be there to explain when they have questions like, wait a minute, what, why are we doing this or why is this necessary? So that we can provide the backdrop of here's why. And you all fight for what you want to fight for. And we can make the pathway there. Like I have to shout out Samantha Lou on my team because she's the one who's constantly just saying, this is what they need and this is how we're going to support them. So I do, I am confident that we're going to get somewhere because now when the Department of Social Services is thinking about a maternity bundle and what that, uh, for payment, and what that looks like, they called in one of the doulas at the table. It wasn't the doulas trying to fight to get in. And that's a big difference. That's a completely big difference. And we all know Shirley Tism's statement, if they don't make space for you at the table, you bring the chair. And here the table was being set and they made a point to say you had to be there. And that's because of the work that um, Earth Natural Touch, Lucinda, Zaria, others have been pushing to make sure we have space. So I think that's, I think we're going to see some success here and I'm excited about it. After the break, we'll continue our conversation with our panelists, Takesha Dwan Everett from Health Equity Solutions, Certified Nurse Midwife Lucinda Canty, Zaria Smith from the Connecticut Commission for Women, Children, Seniors, Equity and Opportunity, and Cynthia Hayes, a doula with Earth's Natural Touch. We'll talk more about new legislation that could support the work of doulas here in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking with four advocates who are working to improve the childbirth experiences of Black mothers in Connecticut. Lucinda Canty is a certified nurse midwife and assistant professor of nursing at the University of St. Joseph. Takesha Dwan Everett is executive director of Health Equity Solutions. Zaria Smith is health policy fellow at the Connecticut Commission for Women, Children, Seniors, Equity, and Opportunity. And Cynthia Hayes is a doula with Earth's Natural touch in Bridgeport. Many of these leaders testified before the state legislature about Senate Bill 1. It would define the doula profession and create steps toward Medicaid reimbursement. I asked Cynthia how SB 1 would benefit her and other doulas across the state. Yes, I think it was already mentioned um, how often we have discovered that access to doulas is just not possible, even for um, what we would deem as successful Black women. Um, And that's for many reasons. I mean, first of all, when we were talking a little earlier in the conversation concerning racism and how it affects Um, Black women giving birth specifically, and all of the racism that they encounter, not just historically, just but just in everyday life. And um, more and more studies are showing, um, and I don't want to lose the point, but, you know, more and more um, studies are showing that women who are educated in a different socioeconomic status or an an upper um, mobile social economic status are still suffering even more greatly so because they are often the heroes in the family. So um, first of all, we just want to, if we're talking specifically about um, those families that are receiving Medicaid, um, the reimbursement to doulas for providing these services will also make sure that doulas can be 
able to concentrate on their profession specifically to be able to provide this service and not worry about the compensation it is very essential. Um, and it also gives us the opportunity, as I mentioned, Earth's natural touch. We, um, we are doulas, but we also consider ourselves perinatal advocates in that we um, there is a whole range of services that we provide. So we can concentrate on really um, being able to get all of the other additional trainings that are essential for us to have in order to provide that care to um, anyone that wants it and to be able to concentrate on, you know, being able to provide like right now we have uh, different support groups that we are sponsoring. One that's been running since last August has been our um, Mocha Milkshake Cafe, which provides lactation support and services to uh, Black mothers specifically. And we know that there are also disparities concerning, concerning that in that we are, we're not supported. Um, for, for a lot of reasons. And uh, we'd be able to concentrate on a whole range of services, in other words, that we can um, provide specifically to Black women. Um, and part of, part of the reason why um, there isn't, uh, there's, well, I should say there's not like a widespread um, information campaign that there needs to be in order to let women know, not necessarily that you know, oh, you need us, but um, more specifically, you need to know that you can do this. And here we are used as a resource. And we just want to make sure that they have access to all of the resources that are necessary to just um, stop and terminate the disparities that are drastically affecting Black women and Black families. Lucinda, there will be people who will hear this conversation. And some of this will be completely new to them. And there will be others who will say, I wish that I could do this or provide this for someone else, but I just don't have the resources to be able to do that. What do you say to people who would like the benefit of having an advocate, of having this total emphasis on their wellness, but say that cost is a barrier? Yes, and I think that speaking up, first of all, is the most important thing when I started looking into maternal mortality and maternal morbidity, Black women were being accused of not taking care of themselves. And what I learned is that was not true, that they're getting prenatal care in the first trimester. Some women are getting prenatal care at conception. So they're doing, going through all the steps. So we have all of these, all this technology and women are still dying or coming close to dying. So we have to do something different. So wherever you are, you can advocate for women to have doulas covered. You can advocate to have women receive better care. And I'm just looking at all this technology and making sure that a doula has a good wage, a good health, you know, good support system, good money. You can still do that and the costs are still gonna be less than what is happening right now. If we could prevent a cesarean, if we could prevent a woman from having to go to the ICU. And again, it's just something that we're just going back to our roots to provide. But I think that we all have to speak up and say, these are things that we need because I feel like we gotta go to the people who are most impacted. We have to go to black women and ask them what their needs are. What can we do to help moving forward? 
And there are women out there who are ready to tell their stories because if they had a poor health outcome, they don't want it to happen to anyone else. I interview women who have severe complications and they said, if my story could just save one person, you know, I'm gonna tell it. It's painful to talk about, but I'm gonna tell it so that others can know what's out there and that other women can be supported through it. So I think that for us to knock down these barriers, we have to keep talking about it. We have to show the benefits but we have to show the impact that it has on those most impacted. And we have to find, I always feel like the money is there. You know, I went to one of the Department of Social Services meeting, the money is there. But the people who want that money are not always thinking about that black woman. So we gotta change where that money is going. And, but it takes us to look at a system that we're scared to look at because we know there's a lot of problems. But if we don't do that, these issues, we're gonna be talking about 20 years, 30 years from now. So this is the time that we really have to look at it and we can't do things the way that they're already being done. I still feel like the money is there. We just have to have it allocated in the right spaces. Takesha, we've heard about the work that's being done at the grassroots level. Zaria talked about the policy challenges, but also potential benefits of making this change and making this commitment. Is there a piece of SB1 here in Connecticut that you think can be most effective in addressing the range of things we've heard about today? Or are there other parts of that legislation that you think this is what we should be focusing on more to really understand what's at stake? Sure. So Senate Bill 1 is um, being considered right now in the legislature. It's passed through committee and awaiting for uh, time on the agenda to be heard on the floor. And there are a number of pieces in it. I, I, most central to this conversation, the definition of a doula and um, the study, putting forth the study to actually define and understand what reimbursement would look like in the state of Connecticut. So that is a central piece to it. But I think there are other components that really fall well into this conversation that track with understanding the impact of racism in health. For example, there's the declaration of uh, racism as a public health crisis, which I think is directly related to uh, the issue of Black maternal mortality and morbidity in Connecticut. There's also the understanding of what that means in creating opportunities to push policy forward that would dismantle the impact of white supremacy and racism in the state of Connecticut. So those are two critical pieces that I think together, if you put those together, would be very helpful in understanding. The one last piece I want to kind of put in here with that, we understand and know some of the story around Black maternal mortality because we're able to track the data. And our data is not perfect for us to fully understand and comprehend the issue. For example, there's still outstanding questions that we're not, and, and this isn't to dig on anybody, but we're still trying to uncover when we're looking at our current numbers around black maternal mortality, are we looking at all birthing persons or is it just cisgender women? So we're just truly trying to um, unpack more information about the data. And I say this to say complete understanding of data through the lens of race, ethnicity, and language, and particularly disaggregated, will better help us understand the true nature and the depth of what our problem is around Black maternal mortality, but also how our solutions are addressing it. But hear me say this clearly, we don't need to wait for the data. We already know we have a problem. We already know doulas are a part of the solution, and we need to get into action around that. So SB1 gives us an opportunity to move that forward. So as we come to the close of our time together, 
I don't want us to overlook the fact that with all of these challenges, with all of the fears and the anxieties, there's something incredibly beautiful and joy-filled about this opportunity that some women have. And in particular for Black women and for women of color and overlooked women in so many dimensions, this kind of joy is an act of resistance to say in spite of how people try to limit my experience or in spite of how people try to deny me this ability to know my body and to be in tune with that experience, I persist anyhow. So I want to ask all of you, how do we encourage and promote that sense of joy for Black women and for all women to be able to define themselves for themselves? Cynthia, I'll start with you, please. Yes, I mean, we did have a lot of, we did speak a lot about um, some of the disparities, but we do have Black women that are doing very well. There are Black women who would have never have breastfed their babies that are breastfeeding. There are women who are getting the birth that they want. And we just ask that, you know, um, and I think it was already mentioned from this illustrious panel, and I, I'm always in awe whenever I'm, I'm with them. Um, but to continue to support the programs and to whenever there's a public hearing concerning SB1 and um, in the future to get out there and see what it is that you can do individually to provide the support to the women and to the institutions that are doing whatever they can to bring support and bring information about the importance of doula care and how women are doing very well with doulas and being very well and they are discovering their own power in creating the birth and choices that they want and deserve. Zaria, how do we affirm that joy for Black mothers? Yeah, so um, of course I'm not a, a mother, but I think especially being a student um, and being like, you know, one of like the younger people on the panel, what I hear a lot from my peers is, you know, they're they're somewhat deterred from, you know, wanting to give birth or wanting to have a child because of these statistics. But I think one thing that sort of has me resting easy um, at night is the fact that, you know, these conversations are being had. Um, so, you know, Dr. Canty, um, Dr. Everett and Ms. Hayes are all working to ensure that, you know, when the time comes for me or people, you know, like me to, you know, give birth or, you know, deliver a child that I will be supported. Um, and I think there's also a lot of conversation, you know, with especially having black healthcare professionals in general, um, you know, there's going to be more black doctors, more black midwives. Um, and also these conversations are being had. Um, within professional schools, within graduate schools, within medical schools. Um, so knowing that, you know, potentially if, if I ever do decide to have children going into the healthcare space, I will see people like me. Um, and even if I don't, there will be people who, who un, not necessarily understand, but are aware of, you know, what my risks are and what I'm going through and know that, you know, my voice should be heard just as much as any other person's. I love that these conversations are happening, but also that they are intergenerational conversations so that people don't feel alone, but they feel connected and heard in a way that often gets overlooked. Lucinda, how do we affirm joy? Yes. And this goes back onto what Zaria and what you just said, just doing this work 
I just want black women to know that you're not alone. There's an army out there to support you. There's women. And again, I've seen women, you know, for years, I didn't have children. I didn't have, I don't even want to say the age I had my son, but I still was able to be a source of support. So I just want to say for Zaria that you're still here. You're talking about it. We need, we all need that support. And, you know, working with Earth's Natural Touch, there, again, there's just so many Black women that are supporting each other in their work and supporting, you know, do, supporting women through childbirth as well, that we're here for you, that we're supporting you, we're fighting for you, that we're, we know that change is going to come because we're working together. And that's just a beautiful thing to see. That brings me joy even just thinking about it. But I just want women to know you can have that childbirth. You have the right to have that birth experience that you want. And there's people here to support you. Lucinda Canty is a certified nurse midwife and assistant professor of nursing at the University of St. Joseph. Thanks to all of our panelists, to Keisha Dwan Everett, Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, Zaria Smith, Health Policy Fellow at the Connecticut Commission for Women, Children, Seniors, Equity and Opportunity, and Cynthia Hayes, a doula with Earth's Natural Touch in Bridgeport. We'll have links to resources and doula support at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Katie Tularski, Jane Scoble-Wolf, and Anna Elizabeth. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back next week.